Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to, to Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Hannah Blackiston. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Tim Burrows. Is this thing on? <laughs> and reporters Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Coming up, Brittany and I sat down with Nick Moyer and Walter Peters, two Walkley Award-winning photographers who have been covering the bushfire crisis for the Sydney Morning Herald, to talk about the emotional toll of shooting the bushfires. Seriously, this fire season has been like a war. Mm. Um, every day, uh, and, and people were being killed. It was very, very... It was quite frightening, Each the lead-up each day. What it takes to get the perfect shot. I was with some... Um, Fire and rescue guys, and they were like, "Well, get back, get back!" And then everyone just ran because it just was evident that like, there were hundred meter high flames. And as we're running, I'm taking photographs. And the impact of good news photography. News photography is about impact, and, and like just doing what words can't, which is like everything. Pictures are always better than words. But first, we'll be talking about. Tourism Australia and the $20 million push for domestic travel. Nine makes one last change to its radio assets. KFC, Trivago and the week in dodgy advertising. And what is Australia's most valuable brand? First up, off the back of the Australian bushfire crisis, there has been a lot of movement in the tourism industry. Firstly, Tourism Australia was forced to pull its mate song ad... Then, a $76 million government grant was announced to help the business promote domestic travel and support bushfire-affected areas, and now we've seen the first fruits of that. The Holiday Here This Year campaign encourages Australians to support local travel operators. Zoe, you wrote this one up this morning. Do you want to tell me a little bit about the campaign? Yep, so the campaign's come off the back of the government grant, like you said, the grant is actually broken down. Um, 20 million of that went to a domestic campaign and 25 million of it is being directed towards international marketing. So the holiday here this year campaign, the idea is it's creating like a unified platform for tourism operators across Australia to come together underneath. And it's really trying to push local tourism operators in bushfire affected areas and not bushfire affected areas because there's been obviously a dramatic drop in domestic tourism with people cancelling their plans to different areas, even the ones that aren't affected by the bushfires. Um, it's also providing support to the states and territories and the individual um, marketing campaigns that they'll be undertaking as well. It's kind of a tough place to be, isn't it? Because I feel like over Christmas we heard so many stories about people who had gone on holidays, particularly to the South Coast, and then been stuck in areas that were affected by the bushfires. But on the flip side of that, it's obviously hurting these communities a lot to not have this tourism. So I think campaigns like this are going to be really important, but I also think they've got a bit of a long road ahead of them to try and turn things around. Yeah, and look, one of the things as well is... um it makes strategic sense to do this because there's going to be a big international short uh, shortfall this year. I mean, there, there, there was so much that was terrible about the bushfires, obviously, but one of them was just the timing was was awful for people reliant on the tourism industry because, um, particularly for the north, people in the northern hemisphere, decision making time for for 
what your holiday trips in the in the in the British summer, the American summer, tends to be around about Christmas. So it was right when people were were, were you know were considering where to go. So that's going to have a future effect. Uh, and then, of course, the other sort of terrible thing around the timing of it all was um, it was that kind of traditional time of the year when there was a real news vacuum. So, of course, it was huge headlines for a long time. So that big question now is how long is the primary thing in potential visitors' minds, the bushfires, Australia feeling a, a dangerous place rather than a hospitable place? So you can see why it then makes strategic sense to go for the kind of the the local market you know it's arguably your patriotic duty to take a holiday in australia rather than go overseas next time around perhaps i was looking at an article that pointed out that when you googled australia i think it was a few years ago and the results that came up versus googling the word australia over the past few months if you're an international tourist looking at, you know, where to go, what Australia is about, the the difference was so stark and it was really that like picturesque, picture-perfect Australia against fire and bad headlines about Scott Morrison, bad headlines about people stuck on holidays. So I think uh, – the, the conversation around what brand impact it has for the country is one that will be ongoing and it will be definitely interesting to see over, the, say, the next year how it does play out because if you were a tourist who wasn't thinking about coming to Australia in your winter, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, you may have already been over here escaping the winter for our summer and it hasn't been a good one. So, yeah. Mm. I think as well, the domestic tourism industry is probably a lot easier to see that bounce back. You know, domestic holidays don't take a lot of time to prepare. You don't need to put in months to kind of save up for them and plan them out. Whereas I would imagine the international tourism is going to be a much longer process to get that back in place. Um, one of the other campaigns we saw come out this week was the South Australian Tourism Commission's Book Them Out campaign. Zoe, who was that aimed at? So that's aimed um, initially at other residents of South Australia. It's really asking them just to go to Kangaroo Island, go to the Adelaide Hills. There's still wineries there. There's still restaurants, small businesses there that need the domestic tourists now to help the air, like areas get an immediate injection of cash. Um, that campaign will um, later be expanded um, to be targeted towards different states and territories to get that domestic tourism coming in from you know, all over Australia, but that's been um, already a huge campaign for Tourism South Australia. They had a partnership with News Corp and um, the Sunday Mail down in Adelaide. Um, that is what launched the campaign. They had a wrap across the paper with an, a letter um, on the inside of the wrap to South Australians calling for them to book um, trips to those two regions. I think what's really amazing out of all of this is how fast people have mobilized to see these campaigns come up so quickly. It's like great for the industry, but also quite interesting and amazing, I think. It has. I mean, there've been lots of very thoughtful, reactive pieces of advertising, you know, that, um, hey, earlier this week, we, we saw that sort of, sort of whole supplements being published by the news core metros around the country, which, um, every single ad in those, and, you know, I, I, 
I happened to be in Melbourne on the day, you know, the, the Herald Sun, I counted 20 full-page ads, all with long-form copy, all written from different brands, obviously, with their sort of various kind of gestures of support. You know, there's a there's a lot of fast turnaround advertising going on, which, of course, you know, we're in such an extraordinary situation. You have to throw out what the plan was before, you know, because anything pre-prepared just looks so irrelevant and out of date. Well, um, Brent Hill, who is the Executive Director of Marketing at the South Australian Tourism Commission, told us that they immediately got the TBWA team on board, who is their creative agency, um, and they went out to these areas and filmed all of the shots for their TVCs that are running like on TV and online within the space of a week, and he even said to us that a member of the team from TBWA missed his best friend's wedding to help work on the campaign and get it turned around so quickly. I suppose the other thing about uh, sort of the South Australia Tourism Commission is is if you look at the strategies they've had, arguably, this isn't that different, very different execution. But if you think about sort of old mate, it was about saying to people across the rest of Australia, you've been putting off coming, now it's time. And arguably, that's what this message really is about. You know, I... You know, as somebody who, who moved to Australia a few years ago, I was always surprised if you chat to someone in Sydney and say, you know, isn't Tasmania great or isn't South Australia great? Yeah, never been, never got around to it. It's an hour away on a plane. Um, you know, you can go for 50 bucks each way in a sale. Um, and it, it, it sort of feels like that almost is the message now is it's, it, it's not just something you can do. You know, this is, this is the time as well. So it sort of, it feels like maybe that's the, the, the other thing that the, this campaign has for it now is a sense of urgency. Yeah. I guess the one question mark hanging over this is we still don't know if mate song is going to come back. And if it is going to come back, we're not sure when. I think they obviously faced a very tough decision getting or cutting that campaign for the time that they did, but also I would say probably a necessary choice. I think if it does come back, there's going to need to be a lot of breathing room either side of it. But it would be such a shame for a campaign that was so good and had required so much work to just be another victim of the bushfire crisis. Look, I don't think there's anything else they could do, to be honest. They, clearly, the strategy had to change. But again, if you think about the underlying marketing thought of friendliness, that close connection between the UK and Australia, arguably, you know, a lot of those feelings have been really emphasised with the, you know, the way not pe- people around the world, including the UK, have reacted, the warmth they feel towards Australia. So I think it will be possible for them to tap into the the thought and update it in some way. So it, it doesn't feel like a completely wasted strategy, but um, I, I think they have to find a new way into it. Well, yeah, I'm quite curious to see what will come out for the international marketing in the next like couple of months and to see whether it will come under that um, philosophy brand platform or whether they're going to have to take a slightly different direction just to get the messaging out that, you know, not every part of Australia has been affected by the bushfires. There's still safe ways to travel here, that sort of thing. Up next, Nine Decides the Fate for Macquarie Sports Radio. After pausing the talk content and announcing a content review in 
at the end of 2019, Nine has made yet another change to its radio assets and revealed Macquarie Sports Radio will be no more, replaced instead with the best of the 70s, 80s and 90s. We, when this was announced, I think there was a bit of confusion around uh, the press release that announced it. And later I spoke to um, Nine Radio's managing director, Tom Malone, and the whole conversation was around this is a gap in the market that desperately need to be filled. This is, we've identified this gap in the market. Since then, there has been a lot of commentary that I've seen both on Twitter, on various forums, and also on our website that says, was it a gap in the market? Was there really no other radio station playing the best of the 70s, 80s, and 90s? But I do think that Macquarie Sports Radio wasn't doing very well on its own. They are still going to continue covering live sports because they've got a lot of partnerships that they have to uphold. So, I mean, really, what 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 else were they meant to do? Poor old, and I know it's, it's, it's a national strategy, but for starters, poor old 2UE. Just the disrespect that brand has had <laughs> over the years. You know, it kind of, you know, there was a time when it was arguably Sydney's most successful radio station before 2GB came through and Alan Jones and co moved across and it kind of then eclipsed it. Do you know, I think I, I've genuinely lost count of how many relaunches of 2UE I've covered. You know, I remember, go, and the thing is each one has a slightly lower budget relaunch than the previous one. You know, I remember going to quite a swanky event seven or eight years ago, probably when they were, they were relaunching to UE because, and the whole thing was pitched. And at that point to UE was, was in different ownership to two GB. So they were, they were basically poised for, they thought generational change was coming to two GB. So they'd need to be ready to pounce when people like Alan Jones went off the air any minute now, which as I say was seven or eight years ago. So, um, you know, at the time, uh, Jason Morrison, who, who's, who's now over at, uh, running news at channel seven in Sydney was one of, one of the big voices there. Paul Murray was one of the big voices is there i remember interviewing the um the station boss asking him what had gone on before and rather memorably because it was on video his answer was well the fish rots from the head so he absolutely <laughs> dumped on the previous management um which was quite memorable obviously and then you I, remembered I, it seven or eight years yeah, later absolutely look it's somewhere on youtube um even to this day i think but the thing was it was it, that sort of made strategic sense. Only, of course, 2GB kept keeping on keeping on with the, with the same people ha- ha- hanging on to those audiences. And that, I suppose, was the problem. Once the merger of the, the kind of created Fairfax radio network, this is before it ended up in, the, in, in, in sort of nine hands, brought the two stations together. That was a real problem, particularly in Sydney, because you got, you know, the only two talk stations. You don't want them competing head to head. So what do you do? You know, you can't, um, yeah, you know, you try a few things. You try the sports thing, which obviously didn't really rate. Um, I guess you might as well do music. You got a license. I think the argument that what the market is absolutely demanding is, is, is some, some, some old gold music, but on, um, on a really bad frequency that doesn't sound very good. I'm not sure <laughs> that's what the market is calling out for, but equally, what do you, what do you do with it? You're better off broadcasting something, doing it cheap and cheerful and, putting some ads against it but yeah it's definitely the second banana network though isn't it well that's the kind of argument is it's cheap you know if you're you've got a station so that isn't Spotify, rating very though. well 
so is Spotify. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I think been a bunch cheap for them, not yeah. cheap for us. But yeah. it's interesting because we've just seen Today FM do the same thing. Yeah. Today FM, SCA's Today FM, which was obviously struggling in Sydney, have just gone, screw it, let's put some music on for breakfast. We haven't really seen the results of that yet because we're not very far into the surveys. But it will. I think it'll be really interesting to see... I just don't really see how they're going to differentiate themselves from all the other music stations. I suppose one caution is when Smooth came along, everyone kind of thought, it's not very imaginative, is it? You know, this was sort of no kind of what's now Nova Entertainment's, their sort of attempt after the the sort of failure of um, Vega Radio and then the very brief classic rock that came and went in the blink of an eye. And Smooth was a massive success. They actually did find there was a gap for that kind of easy listening, you know. It's had times where it's been flirted as the number one network. And yeah, it's a music format. That's all it is. But clever programming spotted a gap. Um, I guess the question is, is, is has Tom Malone, you know, whose history has been very much a li- little bit of radio, but you know, you know, arguably his most successful stint was, was, was running the, the Today Show. Um, has he got his programming and skills to the extent that he spotted what the gap in the market is? We shall see. Also, when I spoke to him, because uh, we've had what feels like a raft of changes, and it also kind of, it was getting to the point where you're like, can we not just have these all in one release? Can we not just have one release that says, hey, we're getting rid of everybody and replacing them with everybody else, <laughs> the end. But like when it happened on Frasier, do you remember when they overnight became a, um, <laughs> uh, they became a, a, a Spanish music format instead of talk? I do not, but I love that. That's what I wish they had done. Just replaced everything overnight and we woke up the next day and it was all different. But Tom promises me that there are no more planned changes. He said everything is constantly shifting and changing, but there is nothing planned. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what the ratings do say after all these changes. Um also in the world of radio, it feels like at the end of 2019, all we had were nonstop radio stories. But now that programming has come back for 2020, hopefully that's ending. But the last one that snuck in there was the return of Robin Bailey to ARN's 97.3. So that's three years after she was dropped fairly spectacularly from the program. Brittany, you wrote that one up. I did. And it was, uh, it was interesting to track the changes in the slot and the different lineups. So both Robin and her old colleague Terry Hansen are back. So Bob this Gallagher is in Perth? Brisbane. So Bob so Gallagher. I'll do that again. This is in Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the Robin, Terry and Bob show is back. Bob Gallagher's kind of been the constant throughout, but yeah. Uh, Robin Bailey said that she was ambushed when she was dropped three years ago. It was all very controversial and she was very clear in her comment that wasn't expected. She wasn't happy about it. She then went to Triple M and then in the latter half of last year, her husband was battling cancer. She stepped back to spend more time with him and he unfortunately passed away very soon after she uh, stepped down off the air and now she's back in her old show says she's coming home 97.3 says she's coming home terry hansen he left because he was very fatigued exhausted couldn't keep up with it he's back so look 2020 <laughs> new year new everyone apparently and that was bianca die who was moved into that slot yeah so bianca was on it and then mike van acker 
and both of them we were told would no longer be in the slot at the end of last year. It just wasn't clear who would come in. So Mike Van Acker's left completely. Bianca apparently still will have a role with the network, but it's not clear what that will be yet. Well, that's a line we've heard before. It is, <laughs> it is. But uh, but Bob, Bob's still kicking and Bob, <laughs> Terry and Robin are back together. The band's back. And they obviously, this had not that I think any programming change happens with the blink of an eye, but obviously this had been in the lineup because then just days later we saw a whole new ad campaign from ARN, which was all their breakfast talent in big sparkly new ads, including the Robin's home or Robin's back or whatever the bottom of that poster says. So they had this ready to go and I think they've really come in heavy and hard with it and it will be really interesting to see if it pays off because it's that not the number one breakfast it show in that market? It is the number one breakfast show. So ah. breakfast in Brisbane is like a very competitive market. It changes all the time and then out of nowhere in the last survey of last year, um, 97.3 breakfast, which was the last survey with um, Bianca and Mike, um, it jumped from like fourth up to first. So it'll be really interesting to see if that can be held. That's going to be a tough one because I would imagine it's going to be tough for them to hold that spot. And if they don't, those first headlines are going to be pretty rough. Were you also the one who sent through that a release was going around about Mike doing a comedy show about being booted off the network or something <laughs> like that? I can't remember if it was Mike, but somebody in the it world was is defi- doing... It was Mike. It was Mike. It was okay, Mike. Then in which case, yes, Mike it is currently doing a comedy <laughs> show about getting fired from radio, which... We should all buy tickets too. Next up, Trivago's dodgy advertising. Travel comparison site Trivago has been found to have misled consumers in 66.8% of its advertising, according to a court ruling. The platform was found to be prioritizing its top offers based on its own interests rather than which actually offered the cheapest prices. Brittany, I believe a lot of this has to do with (laughs) who Trivago has ulterior motives to promote and not necessarily who the consumers might want to book through. Yeah, so there's, there's like a top spot that they call, I'm just trying to find it here, the top position offer. So the top position offer is kind of branded as being the best deal, the cheapest offer, but the algorithm was actually prioritizing offers that came from advertisers which had, which paid higher cost per clicks. So the issue with that is that they were running ads that they were then saying your ideal hotel for the best price, we give you the best price, we give you the best deal. And that wasn't really true because sure, there were cheap, you know, cheap deals among those, but they weren't necessarily presented that way. Although weren't they also being misleading as well? So sometimes what they would do is the comparison price would be for some swanky suite. So that obviously would have been, and, and you know, rack rate would have been quite a high number, but then the bargain price is obviously, you know, that, 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 the, the broom that, closet. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the broom closet on the first floor outside a nightclub with the, yeah. you know, next to the, the elevator. 
Yeah, so they had kind of strike-throughs on prices and different colours for different prices. And, yeah, they were comparing standard rooms with luxury rooms in the same hotel. So, look, the ACCC's cracked down. Rod Sims back at it again, another win for Rod, and took them to the federal court and won. So it was a pretty decisive uh, judgment. And, I mean, from what Rod says, he thinks that it, you know, serves a a much needed warning to similar comparison sites which is you know we're watching we get the dodginess we're not here for it so look out or you know in between digital platform stuff will be on your back it's actually really hard to trust comparison sites though isn't it you know whatever you're sort of comparing whether it's you know insurance or banking or whatever as soon as you start looking at the numbers and do a little bit of additional research yourself it's not the best price you know it, it and that, I guess, is one of those market failures, isn't it? You mm. know. Well, it's also you. It'll have a cheap price on the comparison site, and you click through, but then you've got to pay like a twenty dollar fee because they put that price on this comparison site's website. So it just continually bumps up with different fees they add on. Mm. I think um, I spoke to somebody. I can't remember who they were from now, but somebody from one of the comparison sites, and they did say that they said. The other issue is as soon as your trust is broken, this is particularly in the finance industry, probably less so in travel, but as soon as your trust is broken, consumers just won't use your product anymore. It's also worth noting that um, Travago is owned by Expedia Group. So mm-hmm. there were, I think, and I would argue that a lot of consumers probably don't know that, mm-hmm. which I think makes it even more dodgy. The fact that they have no, they're thinking this is an independent platform that has no ulterior motive and it's owned by this massive travel conglomerate so there's always ulterior motives because ulterior motives is how you make profit right well that's Um, the thing yeah it's It's the profit thing yeah if we were member you know if we were sensible we'd all take out subscriptions to choice yeah you know who, who has a completely different methodology Totally. Does anyone in this room have a subscription to I don't. To I feel embarrassed, parents but I do, don't. But I don't know what the login is. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a shame because he could have shared it here. <laughs> I know. But, uh, yeah, there's another hearing to determine what the fine will be, which could be hefty, could be, you know, rack up in the millions. ACCC also wants their legal costs paid, which, you know, fair enough, and injunctions and other penalties. So we don't know exactly what the consequence will be for Travago yet, but we know that the court agrees with the ACCC that they did the wrong thing. This isn't the first time they've been done either, is it? No. So they took uh, the ACCC took them to court in 2018 for a pretty similar reason, misleading consumers, breaking the Australian consumer law, the same thing, and they admitted to it. Um, so that related to 2017 advertising and the court action was in 2018. This time around, it's 2018 advertising and they were taken to court last year and it's just wrapped up. So, so watch this space maybe they next don't care. year. <laughs> maybe they don't care. Like I, I wonder, yeah, to, to the point on trust, it's like via GoGo. You know, yeah. there keeps being action against them and then being misleading about the number of tickets being available, you know, vanishing as you speak, which isn't really true. Um, you get action, time and enforcement action time and time again. Seem to carry on doing it. Yeah, I feel, I mean, there's definitely companies that build in to their budget that they will spend this much on court action or this much on legal fees. And if, you know, the amount of coming, the amount coming in in advertising revenue is still higher and you can justify doing it. Yeah, if, if trust isn't kind of a core 
you know, measure of success. I just, I just think they don't care. I'm also not sure that Travago would base themselves off trust or whether they would base themselves off convenience because having all those brands, you know, together in front of you, I don't know if perhaps that's better for consumers. Maybe they don't care that they're getting ripped off. Maybe they're just like, well, whatever, it's putting them all there in front of me. I don't have to go to each website. I must admit Mm. the nerdy thing I do is once I get the best price on one of those, I then just go on direct onto my hotel chains and book. I do that with flights too. Um, Also in dodgy advertising this week, KFC was found. Well, KFC by collective shout have been called out for uh, sexist advertising for this is an ad that I have seen. We've been watching a lot of the um, BBL coverage in my house and KFC sponsor the BBL. So there's been a lot of KFC ads and I've seen this ad time and time again. And I actually messaged you Zoe a couple of weeks ago, I think it was saying, watch for this one. There's going to be complaints. So it's a woman. She's leaning over in front of a car window, checking a reflection in a fairly low cut top. And the window rolls down to reveal two schoolboys sitting in the car and a very unhappy mum. Collective Shout have called it out for uh, sexist behaviour. Do have we haven't had any complaints yet, have we? So, or not that we know about. So, Ad Standards hasn't released yet all of its cases for January. So, waiting patiently for those ones. Um, the ad, yeah, like we talked about this yesterday when um, the Collective Shout release went out. We were trying to like figure out like how we felt about it. I was kind of in two minds because. A lot of the comment thread, I mean, there's obviously the people who take it to extremes about people getting too offended these days and that sort of thing. But a lot of people have said, but boys will be boys. And I have wondered in this case, how much of this behavior in this particular case where it's just boys staring at a woman in a low-cut top, how much of it is taught and how much of it is innate, but then... The ad is still just a bit eek. <laughs> yeah. So there was actually, which comes as a surprise for our comment chain sometimes, there was a really good comment on there the other day, which someone said, I don't think the debate here is whether it's okay what's being shown in this ad or not. I think actually what we're doing here is relying on really boring comedic stereotypes to sell chicken. And maybe we should start trying to be a bit more creative in our advertising and maybe we shouldn't just rely on these, you know, sucker punch ads that are using, I mean, there's also been multiple comments giving examples of other ads that have done this same thing. So it's not a new concept. People ogling other people is not a new concept. Yeah, it's a bit hooters and a bit kind of boring and whatever. Yeah. I just found it. Like it's not the worst ad you've ever seen in terms of sexism. It's not the grossest. But one of the comments I saw, which I I agreed with, was it's kind of one piece in a much bigger puzzle. And the more and more these kind of little examples keep getting through and creatives keep thinking, yep, this is funny, yep, this will sell chicken, the more and more it becomes normalised. There's a very clear reason why there's two school-aged boys in that car and not two school-aged girls because girls would not react to a woman with her boobs hanging down the same way. Well, I also wonder if this does get complaints to add standards. I would wonder whether um, a ruling would be different if it's between it being schoolboys and if it was adult men. Because if you look at um, the Ultratune ads, which are a classic case of ad standards addressing the vilification of a community group, um, part of the code, 
they can be really sort of, they really walk the line between being upheld and being dismissed. Um, similarly, um, Sportsbet last year had an ad with a blonde beauty queen struggling to answer a question at a beauty pageant. And that the complaints around that got upheld. So it's a really fine line that I would stand its walks in cases like this. And I do wonder how much the age of the boys in the in this KFC ad will play a role in what the decision is. I wonder on the creative side as well, whether whether it was the best copywriting team in the agency that got put on this one, whether they feel they just done their best piece of work of the month or the year or whether it's just hey we've got a really specific campaign to come out we need something around festival time let's just churn something out of the door that will get past the client and move it's on also, with our lives it just it doesn't feel it's the advertising industry no putting its best foot forward and it's part of a wider campaign so mm. they're all you know little short bursts as part of a did somebody say kfc campaign which um we should talk about that line. Can you ever <laughs> see that being the response to that circumstance? No. Yes, but it will be now. <laughs> this is like one of those things because the whole campaign's based on like little awkward moments. Another thing that surprises me about this is that there's one a KFC ad that's been reported to ad standards before about a woman sort of running into her colleagues after leaving a man's house from the night before. And that got dismissed by ad standards. But the, the whole campaign is based on oh, this sort so of... a touch of shaming as well. Yeah. Well, yes. But um, the whole campaign's based on like sort of awkward life moments. But what, and awkward then the life re- moments for women specifically? Just generally speaking. The, the campaign is wider than just these two ads. But what I'm saying is that the, they're making this line, did somebody say KFC, the response to every awkward moment in life. And I feel like it's one of those things that's going to get picked up and memed and oh, see, I feel like it's been everything. running for long enough and it hasn't been picked up and it hasn't been memed and it's running nonstop through the cricket and it still hasn't been picked up and it still hasn't been memed. So I think if they, I reckon if they wanted to do that and they really wanted to get into the psyche of the world, they should have gone harder and they should have been more creative. Up next, Woolies is named Australia's most valuable brand. Woolworths has been named Australia's most valuable brand as part of the brand finance annual rankings, seeing it take the top spot from Telstra, who dropped to second place. Third went to Combank, fourth to BHP. Coles was in fifth, up from seventh last year, followed by NAB, ANZ, Westpac, Rio Tinto and Optus. Brittany, you wrote the story up this morning, and I think what's particularly interesting is that a lot of these brands have maybe maybe didn't have a great 2019 but to be fair Woolworths didn't have a great 2019. Yeah and I wonder from what brand finance itself has said it sounds like some of those instances might make more of an impact on next year's ranking rather than this year's ranking so obviously Woolworths is facing its underpayment scandal like 300 million dollars underpaid to staff and I found it so ironic because when I when I scrolled enough you know the release was extremely long and had so much stuff in it. And I finally got to the part where the factors that brand finance look at was revealed. 
and two of them was staff satisfaction and corporate reputation. And I thought, hmm, underpayment scandal. I don't know if your if your staff would be too happy about that, but um, okay, great. So yeah, I mean, they have a brand value of eleven point eight billion, which put them above Telstra. Their brand value dropped twenty percent to eleven point seven billion. So the the list curators brand finance seem to think that the NBN rollout affected Telstra and of course the Royal Commission affected the banks, but all big four still in the top 10. So yeah, I mean, it's been a tough year for quite a few brands in the top 10, but yet they're still there. Particularly Westpac. Westpac have had a mm. shocker of a year, but I do think a lot of the worst stuff about Westpac came out in the second half of the yeah. year. So perhaps you're right. And maybe next year we'll see that impact. Yeah. The money laundering scandal came out in November. It was actually ANZ that had the biggest impact on brand value. So it dropped by 25.7%. Westpac was 21%. So it was, I mean, Commonwealth Bank and Westpac both held their positions from last year. So ComBank ranked the best in third behind Woolies and Telstra. And then the other th- uh, other three were kind of grouped together in the second half of the top 10. But NAB dropped five places, ANZ dropped four. So brand finance has has said, you know, that will continue to play out. The woolly stuff will continue to play out. I wonder if in the the bushfire and climate change situation that we're in, whether or not, you know, the likes of BHP and Rio Tinto, whether or not their brand value might be affected by that too. I am um, the, the one that really puzzled me about maybe the methodology as much. I think was they decided that Qantas had a bad year. Mm. They, they they knocked down what they thought Qantas was worth by about eighteen percent or something. Mm, eighteen, um, yeah. Qantas had a really good year, didn't they? Is that are they affected at all by the Boeing stuff or any of that? Like, has it been a knock on from no, other areas? They don't, they don't even have. Uh, this is where I start channeling our our, our events curator Damien <laughs> and his his adoration of of all things aviation. But they don't. Uh, Qantas actually don't actually fly the the um, the seven three seven Maxes, which which had the scandal. So I don't think it could be that. Yeah, interesting. In which case, I have no idea. I can't say. I mean, yeah, if you were going to ask me just off the top of my head what brands had a bad 2019, they would all be finance brands. Yeah. I can't say Qantas. Is I mean, Woolies would be up there and yeah. Westpac would be up there. Share price shot up this year. It's, it's, it's the highest in its history. Um, you know, it's massively opened the gap on on, on Virgin as an airline. Um, you know, as you know, Umbrella chose it as our brand of the decade. Um, so, yeah, I find it I find it really hard to explain why it would see such a fall. The methodology wasn't really clear. They explained kind of what they mean by brand value and what they mean by brand strength. So Optus was deemed the strongest brand. So they say that brand value, and I quote, is calculating the net economic benefit a brand owner would achieve by licensing the brand in the open market. And then brand strength is the efficacy of a brand's performance on intangible measures relative to its competitors. But it's not really clear how they calculate and put a number number on that. Um, globally, it was, a, it was a bit different. So we kind of had retail giants and, you know, banks in our top 10, which, you know, given the state of the retail market as well and soft ad spend in that sector was interesting – 
internationally, it was very tech-driven. So you had Amazon, Google, Apple, Microsoft, Samsung were the top five. So if we're going to talk about brands that had bad years, yeah, I think Google and Amazon had a pretty bad year. But then, you know, they've ranked Amazon. They've said that for the first time ever for any brand, they've cracked the US $200 billion mark for brand value, um, which is well, well ahead of Google and Apple. So again, they're saying that the retail market might affect Amazon in the next year uh, because that's still where their revenue is being driven from. But in the past year, we've also had all of those exposés about how Amazon warehouse workers are treated, treated like robots, insanely impossible performance targets, can't go to the bathroom, and and yet people are still using Amazon and they've apparently they're the most valuable brand in the world. Yeah, but it's like, I mean, if you look at Jeff Bezos himself, I don't think he's got a good reputation anywhere in the world. He's certainly not a good, got a good reputation for avoiding clicking on random videos instead of <laughs> WhatsApp, if nothing else. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it was an interesting list. And, uh, yeah, we had seven feature in the worldwide list Australian brands. Um, Woolworths was, again, the best-performing Australian brand. So... Yeah, look, the skeptical, sad part of me, which, you know, we see quite a lot here on this podcast, uh, just feels like, oh, if you can kind of get away with underpaying your staff by 300 million and still be the most valuable brand in the country, it's telling. George Columbaris is furious Quaking right now. Quaking in his <laughs> Up next, Brittany and I sat down with Nick Moyer and Walter Peters. I'm Mumbrella's Hannah Blackiston, and I am joined by Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Walter Peters. G'day. And Nick Moyer. Hello. Two Walkley Award-winning photographers with the Sydney Morning Herald who have recently been documenting the bushfire crisis. Before we get started, I'm going to throw to you both to introduce yourselves and just give us a quick time, a quick view of your time at the Herald. Nick, we'll start with you. Uh, yeah, my name's Nick Moyer, a chief photographer with the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, I've been specialising in storms and bushfires for about the last 20 years, um, and I joined the Sydney Morning Herald in 1993. And Walter? Yeah, I've uh, been with uh, Fairfax for, well, coming up to uh, Australia Day, it'll be 20 years, and with the Sydney Morning Herald for about 10 years. And uh, when I started in the, the local papers, I always sort of looked in awe at uh, some of the work um, that was in the Herald and always looked up to uh, Nick Moyer and Dean Sewell and all those amazing photographers that I'm now sort of working along with. So it's, yeah, it's great. What drew you both to photography? Uh, for me, I kind of fell into it. My father was a uh, editorial cartoonist with the Sydney Morning Herald and I'd always had art and journalism and being, frankly, a pain in the bum to everybody out there um, in my in my family, um, but I didn't want to compete with him. He was a fabulous artist. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and then a job came up as just a copy boy in the, um, at the Herald, just delivering mail, and then I saw the photographic department. A job came up as a copy boy in there in the start of 94, and I just went for it, and my world opened up. And what about you, Walter? Yeah, out of school, I actually started studying horticulture, and um, my parents had a native plant nursery out out in um, 
Cranbrook in the western suburbs of Sydney, and uh, I started studying horticulture, and and it was something that I think they were pretty keen for someone in the family to take over the the nursery. Um, and as I was the youngest in the family, I sort of headed down that track, uh, but it wasn't something that I really wanted to do, and. Uh, I, I decided um, photography was something that was really for me and I studied um, at uh, Kingswood TAFE and uh, that was great. That was a good sort of hands-on uh, and also volunteered my time at the, the local paper, the um, St Mary Star and Penrith Star and that was like one day a week I was doing that and um, yeah, pretty soon uh, they put me on, a, on the books as a casual uh, I worked in the community papers for about 10 years and was lucky enough to get a, so- a secondment across to the Herald and, uh, yeah, just loved it ever since. It's interesting when I was reading both of your bios, you both state covering extreme weather conditions as a particular interest to you. Why is that? What is it about extreme weather that draws you to it? Um, it's one of those events that um, everybody takes notice of and um, we get caught up in our politics and uh you know the daily lives and technology and everything but when nature wants to put its figure down um it will do so and it'll cut off the power uh, it'll make you scared and it will put you in your place um it's also uh, astounding to watch like um for example storms when a massive rotating supercell is in front of you it is like watching some sort of a mountain coming mm-hmm. at you um, it is awe-inspiring. Um, but also with, with fires, um, it's one of those few uh, occasions in, in Australia where you will come across something similar to a combat sort of situation. Like it's, it is seriously, this fire season has been like a war mm. um, every day uh, and, and people were being killed. It was very, very, it was quite frightening each, the lead up each day wondering what was going to happen. So um, both Walter and I have covered fires for many years and to then be able to put all that training and experience to use, not just on a one-off day, but day after day after day after day um, in places all over New South Wales was um, a great privilege, but it was, yeah, an arduous test. Mm. I think it's um, it's one of those things where, uh, if you're doing a court job or something like that or a portrait, it's fairly obvious where the picture is. But with something like covering bushfires or storms, uh, it's not always obvious where those pictures will happen and, and where the best you know place to be uh, to cover those um, actually are. And so that's, that's the challenge of it and um, something that I think Nick does incredibly, incredibly well and uh, has guided our department um, in such a great way, uh, getting us ready and, and forecasting and working out what areas we should uh, look at and target. And we've got here in particular this weekend, yeah, the cover of the Good Weekend um, in the Sydney Morning Herald for this weekend, there's a bushfire photography special and this front image, Nick, I believe was shot by you. Yes. And it's quite incredible. Tell me about what kind of preparation goes into shooting something like that is essentially years of court jobs. Um, so what happened there was uh, we were out at Orangeville um, and the fire had actually kind of uh, quietened down. So it was the Greenwattle Creek fire. It blasted out across Lake Burragarang earlier that day um, and it had pushed into 
deep into Orangeville, but it had started to settle down a little bit. But what had been happening is uh, the fire had been heating up um, the vegetation matter and uh, the sort of flammable fumes, I guess, uh, from the trees had been been evaporated out of, out of the plants but had not been able to escape. Uh, there's a thing like cool capping, essentially. The smoke over the top held uh, all this volatile mixture of, of, um, of gases down. And then a slight change of wind direction at about 9 or 8.39 p.m. just suddenly made it, like, extremely flammable. The fire just ex- like literally exploded about 300 metres long and about 50 metres deep, and it just all went up within a few seconds. And uh, I was with some um, fire and rescue guys, and they were like, well, get back, get back. And then everyone just ran because it just was evident that like, there were 100 metre high flames. And as we're running, I'm taking photographs, and um, I shoot manually, um, as Walter would as well. It's, so it's, it just means um, you're having to manually change all your exposures because the, 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 ca- the computer and the camera doesn't really know what you want. So one, at one time, it's as bright as – it started off being as, you know, quite dark because it's at night, 9 p.m., um, and then suddenly it's brighter than the, the brightest day. Um, it's like staring into the sun. And then we've turned around and all these embers are flying around. And so you had to very quickly change right back down to being a very, um, for the nerds out there, it's about 60th of a second at 2.8 aperture at about 2000 ISO. So, um, compared to what I was shooting a few seconds before, it's Mm. like at either end of the sort of aperture levels. So, that's how that sort of image came about. And it really is only instinctively knowing how to change um, your shutter speed. Had a camera, you put it on auto or something, it probably would have chosen to do a one-second exposure or something like that, and everybody would be like... <laughs> it would not, not look too good. Anyway, so we kept on running. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we survived. Uh, it, it was a pretty... Uh, it, like the fire and rescue guys hadn't seen anything like that. Um, generally, those things are called area ignitions, and they are kind of like a boogeyman to, to um, bushfire fighters because um, they can literally just explode out of a, even a quite a quiet situation. Um, people, we spent like 10 minutes trying to locate various people because everybody just ran into the safety zo- their safety zones. Um, I ran back to the car and started filing. Um, another smaller version of it happened again at a different angle. So I'm there in the car filing, going, oh, bloody hell, missing pictures, missing pictures, and trying to get pictures in and ringing up and saying, hold the page one, hold page one. Um, yeah, it was, um, yeah, a pretty special night. What kind of training do you get before heading into a fire zone like that from fire crews? Uh, well, we'll do um, uh, generally the media will do a media training uh, day with the uh, RFS or in Victoria the CFA. Um, however, a lot of the stuff that Walter and I, the, the knowledge we've got, really is just from experience. Um, I certainly wouldn't um, say going and doing the RFS training and then suddenly throwing yourself into uh, a, a big fire event like this is a, a great way of going about it. it, it people did it. Um, and everybody's come out safely, but some of those days were killer days. Um, they were bad. Um, back when I started, I there wasn't even in, 
media training. Listen to me. Back in the day, we didn't even have media training. Um, uh, I just did um, the typical um, firefighter training with the RFS, which was quite handy. But, I mean, Walter and I both grew up in an area that was very um, fire-prone. So sort of fires and being aware of them um, have been part of our lives since the dawn of time. One of the things I was struck by looking at the photo on the front cover of The Good Weekend, but also your photos from across the fire season, is the sheer magnitude and kind of overwhelm of them. They're really intense. And that's, as a viewer or an audience member looking at it, how are you feeling in those moments being that close to what you know is a disaster? At at the time, um, I'm actually pretty calm um, in my head. Um, I'm not feeling fear or anything like that. It, the lead up to the day um, is highly anxious for me because um, uh, both Walter and I will be looking at the weather maps and and we throw out essentially we'll be throwing out worst case scenarios. So okay, what happens if the fire does this? Where will it go? And you look at all these possibilities and you know how far a fire can run under particular wind and temperature conditions and how much fuel there is, and you know that um, the fire services were way beyond overstretched Um, and you're just looking at well this could burn to the ocean and through several you know it could destroy hundreds if not thousands of homes Um, and so that anxiety of then going and I'm going to put myself right in front of that and a lot of media did do that Um, some of the guys who put themselves in front of it weren't thinking of that at all they don't actually have the experience to know how bad it could get Uh, maybe that's a disadvantage sometimes but um Certainly there were days where Walter, me, and some of the other guys, we were really concerned about ours and other um, media safety as well as the firefighters. But I guess the difference between the media is, like, we don't have any backup. Um, We can't particularly call on, you know, somebody to come over with a hose. If we get caught out and do something dumb, then then it could be too late. So um, we tend to try and look after each other out there. What about you, Walter? How does how did it feel, and how hot actually is it? Do you have anything to compare it to? Uh, no, not really. I mean, it's nothing. Nothing can pre- prepare you for it uh, apart from when you're actually there and, and in front of it and experience it. And uh, I guess you you don't put yourself in front of like Nick was saying in front of these massive um, fires without the experience, and so. There's been other times I've been out on the fire ground with smaller fires and just getting used to uh, what to do when, you know, it gets particularly smoky or and knowing what your body does. Like if you get smoke in your eyes, uh, they start watering and you, you can't move. If you move, you bump into things. So just being aware of all those sorts of things and being prepared that if that does happen, you know, this is what I can do. But, yeah, it, it's incredible. I mean, that... The, the same night that you were, um, uh, Nick was at Orangeville, um, I was up at Nana Glen uh, covering... Uh, Mangrove Mountain. Oh, uh, Mangrove Mountain, sorry, yeah. And um, the same thing, and, and I got a, a nice uh, ember picture and I filed it, and I think I sent it to you, Nick, as well, and said, oh, you know, and then I think you sent one of yours, and I was like, okay, <laughs> I don't think my picture's going to see the light of day, because that was just incredible, I... I you know that was a special. That one, I mean, Walter had had P one until. Well, actually, I didn't get it in in time, but um, 
it was um I wasn't expecting that. Nobody was expecting it. Mm. Yeah. How does the equipment respond to those kind of conditions? Like Well, this one's not, <laughs> it's not doing too good at the moment. Like I it's actually He's got his camera good. out for those camera out. At home. It's, it's now the, it's, it's actually not the on fire. At, at 24 the, mil. Yeah, the dust storms, dust has got in there and it's jammed it all up and now the glue is, the the fire's melted all the glue off it. But I haven't had a camera go down ever in a fire or a storm. They're, they're built tough. Yeah. It's just that now the only zoom I've got is to run up close to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and tell us a little bit about working with the RFS as well or the CFA. How closely, I would imagine there's got to be obviously a level of respect there and there you know, in the front lines fighting, how do you kind of stay respectful of what they're doing but also make sure that you're where you need to be? You've got a – there's a – I guess a few – it comes with experience. Um, the RFS are like a, a few different groups. So your local guys, as in the the if there is a fire in a particular location and the local crews from there are likely to be quite emotional on a bad day because it is their homes that are going to burn – so you have to be very um, respectful of them and their feelings. And sometimes, um, you know, it, it can be a, a problematic because um, you are allowed to be there and you are doing your job and you are actually trying to record them doing some amazing, amazing stuff. And in the future, they will love having this this um, stuff. But at the times, they can find it um, quite confronting having media there. Hmm. Um but then there's the RFS who are formed into strike teams, and they'll be formed up from all around the state. They'll come together to a particular location and then be sent. Um, and they will generally love having media there because their families get to see them um, out performing and saving homes and saving lives. And uh, so 95% of the time, it's it's really, really good. And then you've got fire and rescue guys. Those guys... When you see the professionals, uh, and this is not to say, like, I love the RFS. I think it's a wonderful organization. But uh, I love seeing the professionals, how calm they are in the most insane situations. And their impact on all the firefighters around them and all the other people around them when they are there and calm, when it's crowning over the tops of homes, it's, it can't, uh, you know, I can't uh, overestimate how, can't underestimate it's heaps good, <laughs> heaps good on everybody around them. It gives everybody confidence when you see how how crazy good they are. In situations like the ones we've been faced with the last few months where there's fires all across the state, multiple states, how how is it decided where you'll go? How long do you spend there? Do you have much contact with the community as well as the firefighters while you're there? Um, well, first of all, I mean, because we're all – uh, parents as well we've got to sort out okay well we need to spend time with our kids and our families mm. and that has been a real struggle mm. um so like we will usually establish walter and i in particular will establish um when a, a fire day is coming up we can usually pick it up by at least a week out and we'll start okay are you going to be able to cover this am i going to cover it are, are you on holidays um and then we will work out where essentially it's working out where the worst uh, fire conditions are going to be, and is there a fire already going there? Uh, and, and then targeting. Uh, so on the big days, we would have um, four or five photographers out um, at, at different fires. So, for example, um, 
one day I was in Bilpin. We had another photographer in the um, around Katoomba. We had another photographer, two photographers um, on the Greenwattle Creek fire, and then we had a freelancer as well um, getting around. And the aim was to be there before the event happened. Um, and that's one thing that the certainly the Herald just. Um, I, I haven't actually seen a paper uh, cover um, and an event as well as we did. Um, certainly compared to fires in the past, um, uh, yeah, it, it's it's the actual visual um, collection of images um, far surpasses anything I've seen from newspapers in in uh, this country. Um, mm. Maybe some of the LA newspapers have been able to put out that many photographers in the right place at the right time, but um, I doubt it. And tell me a bit about how much editors kind of guide you or how much, how do you kind of decide what it is that you're looking for? Is that purely off you when you're in the moment or are you kind of getting any guidance from what you know the coverage is going to be? We tell them what we're doing. (laughs) And um, and the reality is that like uh, with with this event, the photographers are the only people with any bushfire experience. Um, Our department's actually pretty aged, we're quite elderly, um, <laughs> we've covered a lot of fires and we know how the best way to cover it. I mean, we really did want um, some journalists out with us because there are so many fantastic interviews mm. and moments to capture and something that might be very photographic, um, something that might not be very photographic might be fantastic for a, a journalist too. So one of the things we, we managed to get happening was um, having young um, journalists out with us on some of the days and that was a great experience for them, but also they got you know, they got to cover one of the most important environmental events at a turning point in uh, in Australian history, probably. Do either of you have any personal rules on what you will or won't shoot? Is there anything that if you saw it happening or you're just very aware that you wouldn't go anywhere near it? Uh, look, for me, um, one of the rules I have is that um, I, I treat you know, uh, burnt, um, properties as almost like a gravesite. You wouldn't walk, you know, across a gravesite, and and you don't enter a property unless you've been invited. So even though there might be a burnt home there or something, and there might be a great picture, um, I just shoot what I can see from the road. Um, and it was interesting that there was uh, some pictures I took um, uh, around the back of Bowerville after the fires went through there, and it, it threw, went through that area really hard. And um, Myself and Lucy Cormack were driving along this road, and there was a motorbike sort of right on, on right, right next to the road, and completely burnt out. And the whole property, you could see everything was gone. And so we stopped there quickly, um, you know, photographed what we could see, moved on. And after those pictures actually uh, were published online, I, I got a message from uh, the son of the father, like he, the, the man who owned the property. Uh, his son messaged me and said, "Oh." did you take those pictures? Um, that's my dad's property. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, that we were out there a couple of days after. Um, how's your dad? And he said, oh, he's, he's actually in hospital. He's in, he's in a coma. You know, 50% of his body's burnt. And, yeah, just you don't know who's going to see those pictures. Um, and it's just it's really important to, I guess, treat treat those, those areas with respect. And luckily... Uh, he's, he's, Roy has, has pulled through when we were able to do a follow-up interview uh, only just last week and, um, yeah, he's doing a lot better. Is it difficult to know 
where the line is sometimes when you've got people who are vulnerable and responding to things in possibly the worst moments of their life and both you and journalists are kind of there and your jobs are to document it. Yeah, look, you're also a human. Um, the, the line changes um, depending on who the people are. Um, in 2017 at the um, Sir Ivan's fire up near Castellus, uh, I came across a couple, an elderly couple who had um, lost their house and it actually took, um, I wouldn't call it convincing, I uh, asked them, I know this is a really uh, difficult moment. Um, I will leave you to decide. Um, I would like to take one shot of you. And um, they had a chat and they agreed and I took literally one photo and, and, and went on. Um, there is times uh, when action's happening um, before you even realise something bad's happened. So um, this time a firefighter got hit in front of me by, um, by a car uh, up at Bilpin. And all I saw was somebody stumbling towards flames. And so I just started photographing. The firefighters grabbed him and then started to bring him over. At that, that point, I put down my camera and grabbed him and helped take him back to the truck. Um, I, I don't really know why. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have been in their good books for just keeping photographing him as he's trying to get into a truck. That would not have gone, gone down well for anybody. So... And it wouldn't have been a particularly good picture anyway. Um, but I don't know, it comes with experience. I mean, there's times where it's um, like our job's also not to, I guess, do any unnecessary harm. Um, like our job is to photograph what is happening and not make it worse. Um, I mean, there's literally so many images to get. You actually don't need to make somebody feel bad. It's it is a time where, um, yeah, being subtle and and um, not aggressive um, actually it usually pays off in the fact that those people will respond very well to you. Sometimes they don't. You walk off. I mean, I was asked to leave by some um, property owners and and RFS members, and each time I would quietly try to convince them and sometimes they let me stay and sometimes I would leave and you know that's just the way it is what do you hope that people feel when they look at photographs of the fires and does that feeling or impact change in print versus online um yeah they're two very different things certainly the paper it's about impact and slapping around the uh, the reader it's like come on wake up this is this is one of those moments um, online is more about. Um, I mean, you tend, when it's online, it's it's most of the time it's on your on your phone. So it's more about um, actually making people aware of which fires are the meanest, um, and and just giving a very quick sense of the fire activity in a particular area. So Walt and I were both in um, often quite close contact with the RFS. Not necessarily um, with um, finding out where the best place to be or anything like that, but rather us sending images of the fire activity at that time, um, which they would um, put out on Twitter to tell the public, okay, the fire is quite active here, we need to be concerned. And that would often be not actually afterwards, but more in the early parts of the fire of the day. News photography is about impact and, and like just doing what words can't, which is like everything. Pictures are always better than words. <laughs> Gauntlet's I mean, if, I, if, if I could speak in pictures, I, I would.
(laughs) And what about on you guys? What's in terms of the emotional impact or in terms of how it feels, especially in this, you know, as you said, this fire season has been particularly ferocious. It's been going for months at this point. You must just get to a point where you're just like, I I don't want to be doing any more of this. Uh, it, it does take its toll and it's, um, it's something that, you know, we, we look after each other. Um, I, I often debrief with my wife, um, and you know, she knows if I've had a hard day, we'll sit down and chat about it. Um, also with other photographers and some that I might not see every day, you know, there's a, a good mate in, um, Canberra and he's just been going, oh, you know, how are you going? You know, um, just keeping in touch and, and, you know, making thought sure that, you know, we're doing okay in that sense. Um, but it's, it's important to debrief. Um, and, uh, it's important to do that with people who understand what it's like to be out there. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, as I've been covering the fires from October, as Walter had been, um, it, it got exhausting, particularly doing all the mapping and, and, trying to get other photographers into the right spots. Um, but Bilpin itself, I grew up in that sort of region and seeing a lot of that area burning um, was kind of like a bit of a bad dream. And by that, we're talking sort of, what was it, the 21st of December, I was getting really tired and really exhausted. And I was also just starting to, the fire behaviour was just so many levels above what um, I'd seen before and I've seen a lot of fire. It, 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 each time it was it was just stepping up another level and another level. And it just meant that I was really starting to be concerned that the next time I'd put myself in just because I was getting pretty damn close. <laughs> and uh, I was really concerned I was going to put myself in, in a place I couldn't get out from. And that really sort of um, peaked, um, well, at Bilpin, but then I, I went on holidays down the south coast um, and uh, w- with my family. And so there was uh, one day where yeah, th- there was raining ash and the kids thought that was all great and I was going, oh, my God, this is going to be a nightmare and managed to get them back up into Sydney. But then I covered um, the Karawan fire from Nara and I kind of knew that the place to be would be um, up this long, horrible road in Kangaroo Valley um, and I'm really glad I didn't go there because um, the fire behaviour that day was just once again above and beyond anything um, I expected. It just tore through there on a southerly wind and just um, ate the forests. Hmm. Yeah, I think there was a Parks and Wildlife crew. Hmm. They drove in. Oh, yeah, you saw the... Yeah, the, the, there the, a couple of days after we photographed it, and their the land cruiser, we came across it just sort of parked askew on the road and when we got closer we realized the front axle had been ripped out that they'd actually been trying to uh, flee the fire they hit a, a fallen tree the front axle got ripped out so that they you know had a car accident and then they had the the luck of um actually just where it happened uh they were right next to a dam and so they they snipped through a fence and spent the next three hours sheltering in a dam and uh very lucky to be alive. Yeah. I mean, that was the kind of, when I we heard, because I heard about that accident and I was like, that's where I had planned to go. But I was just going, no, nah, I think you're underestimating the fire activity today. Um, and that kind of comes, that comes with experience to the point where 
you're experienced to know enough to know that you actually don't know enough. Um, and, and like each time it, the, the fire activity this season has taken everybody, everybody by surprise. It always went harder than they expected and further. Uh, the fire that took out Cabago tore something like 40, 50 kilometers in the middle of the night. It's like, like nobody's heard of this sort of activity. Mm. Um, it was just um, off the charts. Well, it's incredible work that you both do, and thank you so much for coming in to talk to us about it. Walter Peters and Nick Moyer, thank you very much. My pleasure. You're welcome. And before we go, I just wanted to give you a quick reminder about Mumbrella 360 Super Early Bird Savings. Tickets purchased before next Thursday, that's January 30, will save a whopping $1,000. It's the biggest industry event of the year, and you will not get a cheaper ticket offer than this. So make sure you strike while the iron is hot and secure your seats soon. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash mumbrella360 for more information. That's all from us for the week. Goodbye, team. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Hannah.